Philippians chapter 3. We're in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 12 through 21. As soon as I get this thing figured out. Okay, we'll just go there. That's good. 12 through 21. So, Philippians chapter 3. As a church, we've been walking through the book of Philippians. And uh, it's been a joy. That song just made me think, just as we were singing it there, about how as we get into the heart of Paul... And we see him as really this, this man who is completely consumed with passion and fire for Jesus. I think oftentimes when I see him and the way he lived and the way he talks and the way he prays, the way he loves folks, I can be intimidated in my walk, right? And I can feel like maybe there's times in my life where something is missing, where maybe that fire or that passion or that yearning is missing. That song is helpful because it re reminds us that in those moments, we can ask God to give us that fire, right? When we can't see it present in our life, we see wonderful examples of Paul as he models for us what it looks like to be consumed for zeal for Jesus. And we can ask God that he would do the same thing in our hearts and our lives. It's good and it's right for us to make a discipline of regularly asking him to set a fire in our hearts, right? I want to just remind you this morning, as we, before we re read God's word, that at Parkview East, children's ministry happens every other week. So this morning is an off week. Lots of kids in here, right? And that's a good, it's a right thing. Especially as we look at the, the passage before us this morning and, and the need, the call really, to, to be able to fix our eyes on folks who are a few steps ahead of us where this journey of faith is concerned. Sunday mornings is a perfect time to do that. And so it's intentional that children are in our midst. That being said, um, there probably will be some distractions, right? Kids might be moving, for example. It happens, and that's okay. So if you have family, if you have kids, it's okay to have some movement happening. We're okay with that. Just want to make sure you can prepare your hearts for that, okay? Um, Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to be uh, reading verses 12 through 21, and then I'll pray for us, okay? Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father God, our prayer is simple this morning. We ask that you would take these words, which we believe to be eternal and true. Father, and we ask that you would do us the wonderful grace of writing them on our hearts for eternity. Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit now, that you would show us the Son, or that you might be glorified. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. For many of us today, if we think of uh, the picture of a coach, okay, a coach, odds are many of our images, our minds will be filled with, with a picture of somebody yelling or shouting instructions or corrections. That's what comes to mind oftentimes for me when I think of a coach. But the true meaning of the word couldn't be further from that picture. The word coach finds its origins in a little Hungarian plains of northwest Hungary and the village of Koks. The village is famous for an invention that utterly changed the world. In the 15th century, many in the village made their living from building carts, transporting goods between Vienna and Budapest. Around this time, an unknown carriage maker in Koks devised a larger, more comfortable carriage than any known at the time, and he called it the Coxie. Over the next century, the Coxie became popular and it was copied all throughout Europe. The name was translated into German and into French and eventually was called a coach in English. Our modern use of the word coach is actually a metaphor. Coach was first applied in the world of education, not actually in athletics. In the 18th century, England, the term was used as a verb by students of tutors preparing for exams. The reference for tutors became a coach because tutors carried their students to their goal of passing their exams. Eventually in the 1880s, the term would be applied in the world of athletics, but the idea would remain essentially the same. Coaches figuratively carry their passengers, their pupils, or their athletes from where they are to where they need to be. My prayer is this morning that we would effectively be coached by our brother Paul. Though it may be true that we are currently at a different place in our journey, right? Oftentimes throughout scripture, our journey as a Christian is compared to a walk or a race, right? And odds are that many of us here this morning are in different places on this path called Christianity, right? But regardless of where we are currently, we are all heading in the same direction. And Paul for us this morning coaches us on how to get there. He coaches us. And he does that primarily through three things. First of all, he reminds us of our direction. Where are we headed? What is our pursuit? Secondly, he gives us some encouragement along the way, like any good coach would do. And lastly, we'll see that he provides some instruction, some exhortation on how we can do that. But essentially, the, the big idea throughout the passage is that as Christians, Paul is urging us by his example, that regardless of where we are on this path or on this journey, that we are called to press on, 
to continue to move forward. So first, what's the direction? Where are we headed? You remember from our study last week, if you were here, the Apostle Paul left us in verses 10 and 11 by expressing the greatest aspiration of his life. He said that he wanted to know Christ. He wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection. He wanted to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. He wanted to become like Christ in his death that he might attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul makes it clear that he's looking forward to a time when it's made completely, when he is made completely like our Lord Jesus Christ, which will come at the resurrection of the dead. But in the meantime, he is pursuing, while he's got time on this earth, he is pursuing becoming like Christ. Verse 8. Look above the passage from this morning. Look at what we saw last week in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul's passion in life is simply put, knowing Christ. That's what he's giving his life for, is to know Christ deeper. It's the deepest longing of his life. To better understand his suffering, to know him in his death and in his resurrection. Paul wants to know Christ. And in verse 15, if we skim down and look at the, the verse 15 in our section this morning, it says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul's deepest longing in his life is that he would know Christ. As he writes this letter to this beloved church that he planted some 10 years prior to this letter being written from jail, as he writes this letter, he wants the exact same thing for his brothers and sisters at Philippi. He wants them to know Christ. He wants them to grow in maturity of their knowledge of Christ. The idea for us is simple, and it's revolutionary, right? Is that regardless of where you are this morning on your journey with Jesus, growth is possible. We've seen this time and time again throughout the letter. That, that every day for us as a Christian should be another day of mining the depths of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We acknowledge and confess that though we may not be where we want to be, thank God we aren't where we used to be, right? That's the anthem that can be placed over every single day of the Christian's life. Growth is possible. Paul is inviting us, pointing us to the prize that he is, he is running after and inviting us into that same journey to press on, right? Those who are mature, they should think exactly like this. That's the direction, that's the pursuit he wants us to be mature in Christ, to grow in our knowledge of Christ. He provides us some encouragement, secondly. Any good coach is going to major in the realm of encouragement, right? Through the training process or even in competition, one reminder after another, oftentimes cliche, you can do it, right? You got this. Trust the process. Keep going, right? Encouragement after encouragement. Words that are tailored to provide inspiration and motivation to stay the course. Paul does the exact same thing. He provides us with four encouragements on our path towards maturity. The first encouragement he gives to us, we see in verse 12, is that we haven't arrived. Right? We have not arrived. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul models for us 
what the perfect pursuit looks like, and that is recognizing that you are an imperfect person, right? That you are imperfect. The Christian life is a life of constant, honest, and humble self-examination. And as we examine our lives honestly, every one of us should be able to draw the same conclusion. There's plenty of room for growth, right? This that Paul is referring to is the complete comprehension of Christ. At this point in his life, Paul has been a follower of Jesus for some 25 to 30 years. Yet as much, and this is why it's an encouragement for us this morning, right? As much as he has done for Christ, as much as he has given up for Christ, as much as he has endured for Christ, he still has not fully comprehended the richness of who Jesus is. Right? This is Paul. This phenomenal missionary, author of our letter this morning. He's a model. He says, look to me. If you want to see how to follow Jesus, look to me. Follow me. He eventually gives up his life, right? He is an absolute gospel beast, right? And he can see, it can be intimidating. But for Paul to say, look, I haven't even arrived yet, then every one of us should be able to take a breath, right? And say, if Paul can say that, then it's okay for me to say that. That there's plenty of room to grow, right? If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we told each other every single one of us is a piece of work. And that should bring some encouragement to us this morning, right? We're all a piece of work. Every single, say it to your neighbor real quick. Say, neighbor, you're a piece of work. Yeah, yeah, you're a piece of work. Every single one of us. Some of you ladies have been waiting for that opportunity to say that, that guy sitting next to you. A genuine piece of work, all right? Every single one of us, we're all a piece of work. I can remember the summer I took uh, Zach, we were kind of on this, uh, we took some kids from the school to uh, camp down in Missouri, right on the southern Missouri, uh, northern Arkansas kind of border, and took the kids to camp, and then Zach and I had kind of a daddy-son fishing trip all week long. It was pretty fun, right? And we found this place um, called Dogwood Canyon. I can't remember if it was in Missouri or Arkansas, but it was just beautiful. It's kind of this nature reserve. They, they kind of redid it recently. It's kind of new in the last 10 or so years, but it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place, and it's got a wonderful trout stream that runs in the middle, so we packed up our fishing gear, and we went there, and within the first few minutes of fishing, the stream just snakes through this beautiful canyon. I mean, it is the most picturesque thing like seen in a long time, okay? And you can just see if you've done trout fishing before, they're, they're kind of frustrating, right? Because like you can see them sitting there in a trout stream, but they just ain't having it. Like they're not biting on what you got to offer. It's pretty frustrating, honestly. And so we got, we just started the journey. And as soon as we started, like the first stop that we were at, like it was, we could see some fish there and, and we were fishing and we were fishing and we were fishing. And, and I kind of like looked up, we were there for about an hour. And I looked up and I just saw that this, this creek, this stream just snakes through the canyon. And it was like, listen, we've been here for an hour. We've taken like five steps, all right? There is much more water for us to fish. There are many more fish out there. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 5 when Jesus gets in the boat with the disciples and they bring in their nets and he says, listen, I want you to launch out into the deep. Put your nets out there, right? For many of us as Christians, we've been mining, we've been fishing the shallow, the shallow parts. There are depths to our faith. There is so much room to grow. And we have to launch out into the deep, right? Every day for us should be an exploration of the riches and the beauty of who Jesus is, folks. There is so much room for us to grow. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. This should be an encouragement to you today, 
right? Every one of us is in the same place, right? It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. There's plenty of room to grow. Be encouraged. Secondly, he encourages us by saying that, listen, we belong. We belong. Look at the second half of verse 12. But I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Folks, Paul reminds us that belonging to Christ precedes becoming like Christ. If maturity is like our walking with Jesus, if it looks like walking with Jesus on a path, it's important for us to remember that our journey begins. Why? Because he first made us his own by his grace and by his mercy. Our belonging to God is not dependent on our becoming like him. Rather, we, we become like him because first we belong to him, right? It should free us up. Our belonging to him isn't dependent on our effort or our work, but it's wholly, wholly dependent on the work that he did for us. We belong to him. Secondly, thirdly, sorry, is that we are, third encouragement is that we're a pressing people. We are a pressing people. Notice the language that Paul pours throughout this section in verse 12, 13, 14, and 16. I press on, I strain forward, I forget what's behind, I hold true to what I've attained. Our pursuit is one of holiness, and our progress in spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity is not passive, but it is active. Right? We are not simply a passive people who, who are just completely, completely dependent on the circumstances and the things around us. Right? If you are sitting here this morning and you are, you are not content with where you are, you are not happy with where you are, you, you have some idea of where you need to be going, this is wonderful news because you can actually do things to help move yourself towards maturity. There are things that you can do. And as he describes this pursuit that we're in, it is an active one. We are straining forward. We are pressing on. There is such a thing as healthy discontentment in our life, right? It's okay to be frustrated with where you're at. It's okay for that, right? Like I can think when we started Parkview East a couple years ago, I was super excited about the vision of a place to worship here on Sunday mornings and about what it meant for our church and for our community. Super thrilled about that. As we got closer to the start of it, I began to realize, like, it's going to mean that I have to preach on a regular basis, right? And I started to get a little less excited and a little more concerned, not just for me, but also for you, okay, just to be honest, right? But I'm going to have to preach. And I can remember the first, after the first six months, like, literally, and I think it's part of just the preacher's journey is that usually every Sunday afternoon is like, just don't talk to me. I'd rather, like, there's all this stuff I wish I wouldn't have said that I did and all the things that I wish I could have said that I didn't, right? And it's just kind of walking through that mentally. And it was kind of exhausting emotionally, right? But there was some level of health that was there, right? It was okay, and it's still okay for me to want to be a better preacher. Like, every Sunday, I should be looking at what has happened and think to myself, I could do this differently. Maybe this could be better, right? And, and that's good, that's good. It's good for me and should be good for you too, right? If I get just completely content up here, you have my permission to just find somebody else, right? Go somewhere else, right? Because that's not a good thing, okay? So there's, there's this balance between, yes, I don't find my identity in this. Or I don't find my value and my performance necessarily. But yet I should want to grow. Same thing should be true for all of us regardless of where you're at. As a father, as a wife, as a husband, as a mother, as a 
a child, as a student, as an employee, as an athlete. It doesn't matter where you're at. There should be a degree in every single one of us that says, listen, there's plenty of room to grow. I can do things, right? I can do things to grow. I can learn, right? And the way Paul describes it, it's, it's, it's fascinating the way he describes it. First, he describes it as forgetting what lies behind him, right? And you remember who's talking. Here is a man who is really very accomplished, right? And he, and he very... It's quite possible that those accomplishments in his past could help him become or could create in him a degree of self-righteousness where he sees his value in his performance or in his accomplishments. Paul says, listen, I forget all of those things. They're behind me, even my accomplishments. I also forget my failures, right? The ways that Paul just remarkably dropped the ball. If you think before he was converted to Christianity, what kind of life that this man lived, right? It was a terrible life, right? He, he was terrible. This man was, was constantly persecuting the church. Well, guess what? In God's grace and his mercy, Paul can forget that. It can stay in his past. It no longer defines who he is right now. So regardless if it's his accomplishments or his failures, Paul can forget about it, right? He can forget about it. This should be encouraging for us too because odds are every single one of us could look in our life and we could see behind us lots of accomplishments and plenty of failures. And Paul says as he presses on, as he strains forward, those things stay in the past, right? You don't see successful runners in a sprint running like this and looking behind them, right? If they do, they get into the wrong lane or they slow down. It's exactly the same image for a Christian, right? We press on. Those, those things that are behind us no longer define us. They no longer direct us, right? We are pressing people. Last encouragement he offers is that our progress is the result of his grace. Our progress is the result of his grace. We are a striving people, but our striving is not what allows us to be accepted by God because we've already been accepted by God. We are striving not for grace, but from grace. And it's an important distinction, right? In other words, our desire to grow in maturity, not so that we will be embraced by Jesus, but because we already are embraced by Jesus. And he makes this evident all throughout his writing. In verse 12, I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's why he's a pressing person. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Right? Our salvation and our sanctification are all, are all the result of his grace. And, and if you're here this morning, and maybe you haven't received his grace or known his mercy, and you would call Jesus your Lord and Savior, we're reminded that actually your journey starts when you realize that you can't change your life. That, that your ability to change and redirect is not dependent on your effort. Christianity is not offering you yet another program or a package or a shtick. Not this morning. And how you can change your life, right? Jesus has to change you before you can change you. All right? And praise God for it, right? We are all the recipients of his grace and his mercy, right? John Newton says this, the great hymn writer. As to myself, I would tell you how it is with me if I could. At best, it would be an inconsistent account. I am a sinner, believing in the name of Jesus. 
I am a silly sheep, but I have a gracious, watchful shepherd. I am a dull scholar, but I have a master who can make the dullest learn. He still bears with me. He still employs me. He still enables me. He still owns me. Oh, for a coal of heavenly fire to warm my heart that I might praise him as I ought. Right? Here's a man who has, he's got some ghosts in his past. Right? Who can threaten to haunt him in his present. But praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Even John Newton, right? The slave ship driver. Right? Became an abolitionist. Hymn writer. Even he can say, I can forget what's behind me and press on to what God has before me. So Paul, like a coach, he encourages us. He gives us first a direction. Then he encourages us along the way. And finally, we'll see that he exhorts us. Like any good coach, he provides some, some instruction. And we'll see this in verse 17 um, through the end of the chapter. And really, this is a good, a good way of looking at this, is how we can put into play what he just ex- encouraged us in verses 12 through 16. Paul's calling them to follow his example. First thing that we see in the first exhortation is to reflect godly examples. We see this in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Essentially, Paul is saying, act like me. Live like me. Watch me. Lead like me. Follow me as I follow Jesus. And we've seen him say this before in this letter. Paul extends an invitation for the Philippians to watch him, to learn from him, and to imitate him. I can remember when I was in high school, uh, ran cross country. It was like some of the worst time of my life. I'll just be honest. Hated it. Was terrible at it. Don't like it, right? But my coach was very motivational and very, you know, kind of didn't give me a chance to quit. Just was so... Honestly, I was just on the team because I liked him, okay? And one of the things he would tell us as we were running is the great thing about cross country is it's such a team effort. Like, everybody is so encouraging of one another. Everybody gets a chance to, gets a chance to participate and to run. And there's people at all these different levels. And one of the, his, his bits of advice for us as we would run was he would kind of clump us into a group of other runners on our team who were similar in terms of the time that we would run. And sometimes even he would, he would put us with folks who were a little bit ahead of how fast we were running, right? And so the idea was simple, that I knew who the guys were. If I wanted to beat my time, I knew the guys I needed to run with in that race, right? And and Paul says Christian life is, is much like the same, okay? That we should surround ourselves with men and women who are faithful in their pursuit of Jesus, who want the same goal. They want maturity in their knowledge of Christ. They want the same thing. And we should surround ourselves with men and women like that. And we should run the race with them. It's helpful to have a brother or a sister who's a few steps ahead of us down the road so we can maintain the pace, if you will. Right? The same thing. Reflect. We should reflect godly examples. As we reflect godly examples, he tells us in verse 18 and 19, we want to be careful to reject worldly imposters. Look at verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, we're not sure of exactly who Paul is referring to as he writes this. It's most likely not the Judaizers that we talked about last week, but rather these are more than likely folks who are members of 
the church, who would identify themselves as Christians. Their divergence from Christ is not primarily theological. Rather, it's ethical, right? Paul has this huge emphasis on their walk and how they live. And he's saying that when it comes to taking the, 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 the gospel truth and allowing it to shape the way we conduct our lives, these, this is where their divergence comes. They drift from it, right? When you watch the way they live, what they're running after, how they direct their resources, the relationships that they find themselves in. They're consumed not just with, with a love of the world, but ultimately a love of themselves, right? Our life as a Christian is supposed to be centered on Jesus. For these folks, these people, their hearts are tied to this world, right? And one of the greatest obstacles, one of the greatest obstacles that we can face as a people to growing towards maturity to growing in our understanding and comprehension of how awesome and beautiful Jesus is, is when our heart longs for the things of this earth. It threatens our deep knowledge of Christ. Our love for Christ is, is threatened by our love of this world, right? Our love for these things of this earth essentially tethers our heart to the earth. Right? And Jesus has called us to be his people, a heavenly people, a kingdom of priests. Right? Our hearts should not be tethered to this world. They should long for heaven. Right? Their appetite, Paul says, is their own glory, not the glory of God. And it threatens even their relationship, not just with God, but also with each other. And notice how Paul's response to these folks. Right? Paul's response is that he weeps them. His heart is broken for them, right? These are the folks that would raise their hand and nod their head and yes and amen in church, but the minute they walk out the doors, they're wiling out, right? Their life looks more like the world than it looks like the king, and that's a problem. That's a problem. Watch out. Reject worldly imposters. And the last exhortation that he gives us in verse 20 and 21 is to remember who you are. Remember, Paul is writing from prison to these friends in, in, this, in, in Philippi, which is a Roman colony, right? And, and the, the threat, the temptation for, for folks who would be in a Roman colony was to allow their glory to be placed in their earthly citizenship, in their earthly home, right? That their identity would be formed by their earthly sense of belonging. And Paul says, listen, you are a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of heaven. Live like it on earth. As your gaze drifts up to the glory of God, your life should reflect it in the way that you treat one another, the way that you, you operate as an employee or an employer, the way you go to school as a student, the way you live as a neighbor. You are a citizen of heaven. Live like it on earth. Live like it on earth. Remember who you are. Remember who you are, right? And praise God that every single one of us, every single one of us has received, that has received God's grace, that understands and has tasted the sweetness of salvation, can call heaven, even now, our home. Heaven is our home. This is an encouragement to me, honestly. Right? As we look at the world around us, it seems one day to the next, headline after headline, seems chaotic and confusing at best, right? Well, folks, when you are a a child of the king, you, while you're on this earth, you should feel homesick to some degree, right? 
We should, we should see what happens around us and it should break our hearts, but should also, uh, it should also cause in us a desire to be with the Father, to be home, right? You are a citizen. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's an amazing, amazing thing. One of the things that Jesus has given us as a people to help us to remember who we are is the Lord's Supper. He gives it to us, and it's a way for us to, to re remind ourselves of our identity. And at each, we, we make a regular practice of doing this twice a month, and it is an active way for us to get up out of our seats and to remind through the discipline of the Lord's Supper, the gift of this sacrament, that, that this is who we are as a people. And, and what makes us who we are, again, is not our effort, it's not our work, right? But it's the, the blood that Jesus shed on the cross that allows us to say, he is our father, right? We are citizens of his kingdom. So this morning, we're going to go ahead and remember actively who we are as a people, right? And there's some tables around here. There's uh, some bread that you can take. And uh, after I get done praying, we'll just kind of, band will come up and play. And you'll go to one of the tables and dip it and then kind of make your way back to the seat. I think there's a gluten-free option in the back, maybe, I don't see a sign there, so maybe not. We'll see. Okay. Let me go ahead. I'm going to read this for us, and I'll pray, and we'll be able to do that. For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, Lord, as we prepare our hearts just right now for the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray that you would um, allow this to be just an active way for us to remember um, what it cost you to make us your people. Lord, I pray that the the glory and the wonder, Lord, just of your design would be made real to us right now and that you would allow us to just, to join, Lord, in union with Christ, that we would be reminded that we are united with Christ. Lord, and like Paul, that you would put in each one of us, Lord, a longing for a deeper, more real understanding of who Christ is. God, we thank you, Lord, that you have demonstrated your love to us this way. Lord, and I pray that we would reflect on it and consider what it demands from the way that we conduct our lives. We ask these things in your name. Amen.